welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today, we are putting the fun in antifungals as we discuss when an invasive fungal infection should be on your radar as a clinician, the amazingly overflowing antifungal pipeline that we have in recently approved antifungals and one soon to come, some basics surrounding antifungal susceptibility testing, and then some hot clinical controversies. But before we start, I do need to pause and say hi to our dear friend, Russ Lewis, who is an antifungal guru pharmacist who actually lives in Italy. And he told me once that he listens to breakpoints while he's out walking his dog. So Russ, this episode is for you. And I hope you're out walking your dog and listening to us today. Today, we have two incredible guests. Our first is Dr. Kayla Stover, who's a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, where she specializes in antifungal pharmacotherapy and antimicrobial stewardship. She serves as the Infectious Diseases PGY2 Residency Program Director and was recently selected as an author for the IDSA guidelines on the treatment of histoplasmosis. And a fun fact about Kayla, when I was first starting as a pharmacy student, she was one of the first ID pharmacists I met in a professional pharmacy organization and has been a good friend and mentor ever since. So this is a special episode for me. Kayla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I have known Erin now for a long time, and it's really exciting to be in this forum. Um, so I just want to say thank you for inviting me. Fungal diseases and antifungals in general are my very favorite topic to teach, and so I am just really excited to be here. We're very excited to have you, Kayla. Thank you. And our second guest is Dr. Nathan Wiederhold, a professor at UT Health in San Antonio and the director of Fungus Testing Laboratory there. Nathan is a pharmacist who specializes in microbiology. He serves as a voting member on the CLSI Antifungal Susceptibility Subcommittee since 2015 and focuses his research on trends in antifungal resistance, new mechanisms of drug resistance in fungi, and in the evaluation of novel agents under development for the treatment of invasive fungal infections. So he's probably worked on some of the drugs we will discuss here today. You probably at some point in your career have said you're sending results off to Texas and you may or may not have been talking about his lab, which is pretty neat. So Nathan, thank you so much for joining Breakpoints. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Aaron. And just like Kayla, I really enjoy uh, talking about fungal infections and antifungals. And as director of the Fungus Testing Lab, that's pretty much all I do uh, every day. Um, also like to add uh, that I'm a real fun guy and I like corny jokes. So there you go. <laughs> well, there's plenty of space here for you in this podcast as we put <laughs> the fun in antifungals. I'm already so excited for this journey. Um, but let's, I too love fungal infections, immunocompromised infectious diseases is my home. I was actually very torn when I started my pharmacy career. Do I want to go into oncology? Do I want to go into infectious diseases? What I realized is I love that, that the mix of it in that patient population and ID really has my heart. So I adore this topic and I want to frame for our listeners why this topic is so important and why this impacts all of our patients really, even though you may not work at a large urban academic center where you're seeing the craziest of crazy. Invasive fungal infections can impact all of our patients with different risk factors in different ways. Endemic fungi we notice are spreading all across the country now. So those lines are getting blurred. And this is something that really all clinicians need to be aware of. So Kayla, why don't you start us off here and, and tell our listeners when you're thinking about 
invasive fungal infections, like what kind of patient is that? When does it show up on your differential when you're rounding on ID consults? Um, you know, we talk about probable and proven IFI, what's the difference there? And, and really just who are these patients? When do we see these infections and, and what does the clinician need to know? Yeah, absolutely. To start, I think you brought up a really good point. Um, we talk about invasive fungal disease, but there are actual definitions for invasive fungal disease. Uh, the mycosis study group is kind of the hallmark organization in fungal literature. And in 2020, they partnered with the European Organization for Research and Treatment of Cancer, and they updated the consensus definitions of proven and probable invasive fungal disease. So in these consensus updates, proven invasive fungal disease includes severe systemic infection in any patient that's caused by a yeast or a mold, but then it has to be confirmed by histopathology, cytopathology, or microscopic examination of a specimen. Invasive fungal infection in this new iteration is limited to immunocompromised patients and requires a combination of a host factor, clinical feature, and mycological evidence. So if you are missing the mycologic evidence, that is when we would classify a patient as having possible invasive fungal disease. And this is kind of an academic uh, classification from proven to probable to possible, but it is a, a method of diagnosing that I think Nathan's gonna talk about a little bit later. But when we talk about different hosts, like I mentioned, some of these definitions are specific to immunocompromised. There are also differences in risk factors when you talked about which patients we should be worried about. There are a lot of differences based on immune status. And I think when I am teaching this topic, I tend to separate fungal pathogens into Canada versus everything else, but it's really <laughs> not that simple. Canada versus the world. <laughs> Absolutely. So generally immunocompromised hosts are at risk for more of those other everything else pathogens, uh, cryptococcus, dimorphic fungi, like histoplasma, blastomyces, coccidioides, aspergillus, and non-aspergillus molds like mucorales, fusarium, cetosporium. And this is also the group that sees fungal identifications that very few people have heard of, almost everybody has to look up. So basically just that really weird stuff. Canada is probably the most notable pathogen. I think in any fungus paper you've ever read, it says Canada is the fourth leading cause of nosocomial bloodstream infections. <laughs> um, and this is from the really, really well-cited Whispling Hawk uh, epidemiology paper that was published in 2004 in CID. And since then, there have been a lot of studies um, kind of looking at risk factors with Canada. Probably the most notable of this was in 2006 from Leon and colleagues, and they evaluated a number of risk factors in really critically ill patients. The factors most predictive of proven invasive candidiasis, so confirmed by a specimen evaluation, were surgery, multifocal colonization, total parenteral nutrition, and severe sepsis. But this group took it one step further and evaluated these predictors to create a Canada score, giving patients one point for surgery, one point for colonization, one point for TPN, and then two if they had severe sepsis. They, uh, their yeah. predictive system says that a score of more than 2.5 accurately separated patients at high risk of fungal disease who would benefit from empiric antifungal treatment. 
And this Candida score has a sensitivity of 81% and a specificity of 74%. But 2006 was a long time ago. And so I wanted to bring in something a little bit newer. There is a 2022 uh, systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in CHEST. And they identified broad spectrum antibiotics, blood transfusion, Canada colonization, central venous catheters, and total parenteral nutrition as the highest associated risk factors, specifically in critically ill patients. And that aligns pretty well with what we have described as the historic risk factors for Canada specifically. Now, switching gears a little bit, other notable fungus with specific risk factors, we've kind of already talked about the growth of endemic fung fungi. So uh, living in endemic areas, Midwest, South, Midwest and Mississippi River Valley for histoplasma and blastomyces, travel to one of those regions is very uh, strong risk factor for endemic fungi, specifically the dimorphics. And then things like chronic lung disease, asthma, COPD, or prolonged time in the ICU are particular risk factors for aspergillus. That was a wonderful overview, Kayla. Thank you for that. I've said it before on this podcast, but I'll say it again. I trained in Wisconsin and I always smile because I saw so much blasto. And I think I've seen one case of blasto since I, <laughs> since I moved to Pittsburgh. And so that is, you know, that could, your, your likelihood to see some of these things can definitely vary by region. Although we did just say a lot of these old maps of endemics are getting a bit blurred as travel increases and access increases and things like that. Um, and then I think some of the risk factors you went over, right? I mean, I think TPN and an ICU patient with septic shock could be a board question. It probably is right in considering Canada in those patients, but that was fantastic about how these can appear for, for really everyone and an awareness of the antifungal dare I use the word armamentarium in an infectious disease thing, um, <laughs> is, is important. And so with that, let's talk about it. So for decades, we have had the triazoles, which are incredible antifungals, right? Incredible class of agents in general, especially for a pharmacist, we can get real excited about them, but that's beyond the scope of this pod, unfortunately, echinocandins and then amphotericin. And then you can flow in, throw, flow in, throw in <laughs> flu cytosine and a few other miscellaneous antifungals, but that was pretty much it. And so good for learners, less to learn, I suppose, bad for patients, not as many treatment options, but now we have so many antifungals coming into our arsenal, which is really, really exciting. And so I want to walk through those for our listeners and really for the bulk of this pod. And so the first one we're going to talk about today is a Brexifungerp, which is actually FDA approved, but probably not for the thing you want to use it for, although very important for outpatients and our colleagues in women's clinics and things like this. Very common, just maybe not something we see so much inpatient. Um, and so Kayla, I guess I'm going to go back to you and then we'll switch over to Nathan. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about Abrexafungerp and, and why this is exciting? I'd love to, uh, but I'll start by saying, if you want a good review of some of the pipeline agents, Dr. Wiederhold happens to have helped author a paper in drugs that was published in 2021 that has a really good summary of a lot of the pipeline agents. I will co-sign so, that. I actually have it up on my computer right now. It's very good. Read it like it has the best graph of all of the comparisons that I've ever seen on susceptibilities. It's so pretty. I agree. Graph so on pretty. page six, if anyone is pulling this up as they listen to this podcast, as we are discussing it. It's very yes, nice. And it's color coordinated, red, yellow, green. Love it. So back to Ibrexafunder, 
Um, it is so named because it's the first in class antifungal and it's very, it's similar, but unlike others previously approved. So the brand name is Brexafem and it is FDA approved, but like Aaron said, it's FDA approved for the treatment of vulvovaginal candidiasis, specifically in adult and postmenarchal females. It is a triterpenoid antifungal, which sounds in mechanism a lot like an echinocannon. Ibrexafunger inhibits 1,3-beta-D-glucan synthase, and that sounds an awful lot like the echinocannons, but it does interact with a unique binding site, and that stabilizes the structure against some of those echinocannon resistance that we see with other organisms. It has activity against aspergillus, dimorphic fungi, candida species, including isolates that have been historically azole-resistant, like Canada glabrata, Canada oris. There are a handful of trials with uh, Ibrexafunger right now, um, including one for invasive candidiasis. Uh, the comparator there is fluconazole, one for invasive pulmonary aspergillosis compared to voriconazole, and then a C or a open label study called CARES, and then a multi-pathogen study that's really evaluating Ibrexa for use in pathogens refractory to standard therapy. And I think that's one of the places where we think practically this drug might be used is for those things that other, other antifungals historically haven't been good for. Uh, notable things about Ibrexafunger, uh, it's available as an oral formulation, which is of course a unique thing for an echinocandin or an echinocandin-like drug. There are no adjustments for renal or hepatic dysfunction, but there are significant drug interactions. And so there may actually need to be dosage adjustments based on that factor. It should not be used with cytochrome P453A4 inducers. And you also need to have some caution with inhibitors. It is contraindicated in pregnancy, and you actually have to have your patient undergo pregnancy testing before even starting Ibrexafunger. But in the trial so far, adverse effects have actually been fairly mild, and it's been fairly well tolerated. The most notable ones were nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and some increased transaminases. Thanks for that, Kayla. I think so main things I think we want our listeners to take away from this is it's not an echinocandin, but effectively we can somewhat think of it as an oral echinocandin, which is extremely exciting, but the dose approved for the approved indication is 300 BID times one day. Um, and the dose that we're studying in, in clinical trials that you described is 750 for a BID for a day as a, a load and then 750 daily. So that is important. One, don't worry if you wanted to use it off label right now, you can't cause no one will pay for it. Um, but so, cause if you take the outpatient tablets, there's no way you could even try to get to a 750 dose. So I think that'll just keep it from being used off label for treatment, but, but that's really, that's a big dosing difference. And that's really something to, to keep in mind, but I think we're all very excited about the potential of this, especially to facilitate transitions of care. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Our next agent that we have that is also FDA approved. So we have two new antifungals that are FDA approved, um, is otessaconazole. So Nathan, do you want to kick us off with that one and explain what this guy is? Happy to do it. 
So otezaconazole is one of these drugs that I like to consider into the Me Too category. It's not a brand new class of antifungals. It's an azole, but we have to remember we can subdivide the azoles into different categories. You know, first were available were the imidazoles like ketoconazole. Then we have the triazoles, which are the ones that we currently use, fluconazole, voriconazole, posa, itra, and isavuconazole. But otezaconazole is the, a new sub-variant or subclass, if you will, of the azoles in that it is a tetrazole. And so what that means is in that five-member ring that actually goes into the active site of the enzyme that inhibits the 14-alpha-dimethylase, there are four nitrogens instead of three. So there the name tetrazole comes from. So it was intentionally designed that way by medicinal chemists at Viamet. Uh, they're the company that really started this drug. Uh, and now it's uh, being taken forward by a company called Mycovia. And so they made that change in the five-member ring, and they also modified the side chain uh, that is recognized by the amino acids of the substrate binding site within the fungal enzyme. And the whole purpose of that was to have greater specificity for this fungal CYP51 enzyme, which is the same thing as linosterol 14 alpha dimethylase, in order to give it greater selectivity for the fungal enzyme compared to human or mammalian cytochrome P450 enzymes. So therefore, they're trying to reduce the potential for drug-drug interactions, which of course are uh, quite limiting uh, in clinical practice for the triazoles. As you mentioned, it was recently approved by the FDA for the treatment of recurrent uh, vulvovaginal candidiasis. I believe it was at the end of April of this year, so brand new. Uh, its brand name is Vivjoa, V-I-V-J-O-A. Uh, and in the package insert, you can see it's either approved as either monotherapy or in combination with fluconazole. And the dosing is different uh, if you're using it as monotherapy or in combination with fluconazole. It is contraindicated in pregnancy and in lactating women, and per the package insert, females in reproductive, uh, females of reproductive potential. Now, why is that? Uh, well, the reason is, is because the half-life of this drug is 138 days, not hours, but days. And so therefore <laughs> it is. So the drug exposure window, if you think the drug exposure window is five times the half-life, that's 690 days that people are going to have, you know, good exposures to this drug. Uh, it does have very good activity against candida species, including some, but not all, fluconazole-resistant isolates. Very good activity against uh, Cryptococcus neoformans as well as Cryptococcus gadii. Uh, very good activity against coccidioides and also trichophidin species. Um, as it was designed, it does not undergo significant metabolism and co-administration of drugs that are metabolized by cytochrome P453A4. The ones they looked at in the studies were like midazolam, uh, ethenylestradiol, or ethenadrone. Those were studied. Um, basically, there were no changes in the levels of those drugs. And so at least from some of the limited data that have been looked at in the clinical trials, uh, it doesn't seem to have many drug-drug interactions. However, it is an uh, inhibitor of breast cancer-resistant protein, BCRP, so there is a warning in the package insert about co-administration of BCRP substrates such as resuvastatin. Oh, interesting. Okay.
Well, that's exciting. That is a fascinatingly long half-life. So you're not going to have an infection for two years. Do you think just curiously with that long half-life life, it's been pretty well tolerated in safety studies, but for patients that have a problem, is this, is this going to be worrisome? You know, the way I like to, and I've been teaching our students uh, in pharmacy school, uh, you know, for quite a while now about isabuconazole and its long half-life. You know, this, of course, dwarfs, you know, makes, uh, dwarfs the half-life of isabuconazole. And I always like to tell them about isabuconazole, and I'll tell them the same thing now about otezaconazole, is that having a long half-life is like having a double-edged sword. You know, you, it's great for drug exposures, but if you run into problems, you, that patient's going to have problems for a long, long time. And so, you know, people like to promote the long half-life, but it can get you in trouble in certain situations. That's a really good point. And I, I like the comparison to ISA because we say this with ISA levels. You can really, once you're at steady state, you can really check a level whenever. Um, your peaks and troughs should be relatively similar, and that always kind of blows people's minds. But uh, it should be with, with that long of a half-life. Um, I also love MedChem so much. It's partly why I went into ID because I think the structure of antibiotics is fascinating. So I appreciate the emphasis on that because it really does describe why these molecules can overcome resistance, why their half-lives are different or why they work for certain pathogens and others don't. So thank you for showcasing that. All right, let's move on to our next drug. I think this is a really exciting drug. Uh, well, they all are, but I um, I've actually used this one a few times, compassionate use in practice recently with a few patients and seeing those patients improve. And that's always an amazing feeling when you're like, they used to have an infection that we couldn't cure and now we can, and that feels very good. So our next one we're going to talk about is Fosmano GPEX. So Kayla, do you want to walk us through this one? Yes. Fosmano GPEX is an interesting drug. The active moiety is Mano GPEX, if I'm saying that correctly. This is a, a relatively new class. The N-phosphonooxymethyl drug is what I have written as the class. Mm -hmm. And it targets an anchored protein in the cell wall, which prevents trafficking and anchoring of manoproteins to the cell wall and membrane. And ultimately what this does is it prevents adherence to a host mucosal or epithelial surfaces. So it doesn't attach as well and then lead to disease. The spectrum is incredibly broad. It targets Candida, Aspergillus, Dimorphix, Sketosporium, Trichosporin, Cryptococcus, among others. And it targets organisms that are resistant, or generally pan-resistant, even like Candida auris. There are a handful of studies. Um, there was an invasive uh, candidiasis candidemia trial called APEX, but that has been terminated due to COVID. And so I don't know if that will be uh, restarted uh, again or not. Yeah, and I think there they're are... actually gearing up to restart that one now. Okay. Yep. That'd be really exciting. Um, there are also studies that are getting ready to start or that have just finished on invasive candidiasis and invasive aspergillosis um, and rare molds trials. And so I think the interesting thing about this drug is that it has one of the broadest spectrums of the pipeline agents, except that it does not cover Canada Cruzii. <clears throat> and so that's, that is a, a notable gap there, but <clears throat> it is synergistic with liposomal amphotericin B 
And so this might be a place where we might start talking about combination antifungals, which I don't think we have a ton of data for outside of cryptococcal meningitis. And so I think that makes this drug special. It has been pretty well tolerated in four phase one safety studies. And of interesting note, it has fast track status from the FDA for invasive candidiasis, aspergillosis, Edosporium, Fusarium, Mucor, Cryptococcus, um, Coccidioides. So it, could I add just a couple of things? Um, one of the things that people, you know, when this first drug drug first came out is out of a company called in Japan called Esai Pharmaceuticals. Um, and they said basically had no activity, of course, against Candacruzii as well against the Mucorales. But we're now kind of learning that, you know, the in vitro activity does not necessarily always predict uh, in vivo efficacy. Uh, because the activity that you described, not only does it inhibit the growth, but also prevents uh, the adhesion, which is so important for colonization and establishment of infection. So even though you might not see in vitro activity, it still might prevent or help treat infection. And, you know, you talked about the synergy, you know, that that's, I think, is very, very important. So the whether or not it really covers um, the mucorales, I think, is still an open question. But uh, I think there is a lot of interest in using it in combination with liposomal amphotericin B against those highly aggressive infections. The other thing I want to add is, um, you know, in terms of drug-drug interactions, they did a study, but those results have not been released yet. And so we don't know what the drug interaction potential of uh, this agent is. The one thing I want to add, though, is I think there could be, and again, I could be wrong, but I think there could be the potential for cytochrome P450 interactions. And the way I say that is because this is one of those drugs that the pharmacokinetics that we see in humans is so much different than the pharmacokinetics that we actually see in mice or in uh, other uh, lower mammals. So like mice hypermetabolize this drug. And so in order to study in preclinical studies, what the company has done uh, and other vest investigators have done is they've combined it with this drug called 1-aminobenzotriazole. And that basically is for a drug interaction to inhibit the cytochrome P450 enzymes in mice and so that the overall exposures of phosphatidylserpics are so much higher. And that's the only way they can actually achieve clinical exposures uh, similar to what we see in humans. And so because that occurs in mice, I think there could be the potential, again, I could be wrong, but for some uh, drug interactions with cytochrome P450 enzymes in humans. That's really interesting. That's almost like when we give like ketoconazole to maintain mm -hmm. prolomus levels in transplant yep. patients. So intentional manipulation, that's fascinating. I think, yeah, the spectrum here is awesome. The mechanism is awesome. Um, I've used this for a tragic lamentospora case recently, as well as a fusarium. And again, these patients used to just go palliative with surgery and we'd really have, or we'd give them weird combinations of a lot of things. And so um, this has been a very welcomed addition to our arsenal. So very cool. Um, okay. Let's transition to the next agent then raise a fungin also very welcomed, very neat, uh, agent. So Nathan, do you want to describe this one and its possible roles in therapy? Sure. So this is another one of those me too agents. And so it's an echinocannon. So it has the same mechanism of action as caspo, anidula fungin and mycofungin. 
but some consider it to be a second generation echinocannon because it has been structurally modified. So from a structural standpoint, it's very similar to a nigelofungin, but they've modified it uh, such that the half-life is very long. It's about 130 hours in humans hours, compared to not, day. hours, not days. Hours back to hours here. But here we or, go. Here we go yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> right. So 130 hours uh, in humans compared to like 24 hours for nigelofungin. And so that does give it the potential for less frequent administration. So possibly once a week infusions, which should make outpatient use so much more simpler uh, than it has been for uh, patients who need to have uh, uh, outpatient infusions of an echinocandid. Uh, just like the other kind of cannons, it's extremely well tolerated. Uh, in uh, some of the uh, early uh, safety studies, uh, the only things they really reported were infusion-related reactions, uh, but those were really at the higher doses that were uh, studied. Um, but like in a kind of candon, its spectrum of activity is somewhat limited. You know, we're really talking about candida and we're talking about aspergillus. It has no activity against cryptococcus. It has no activity against uh, trichosporin or rotatorula. Uh, its activity against other molds is somewhat questionable. Um, but because it has that long half-life, uh, I think a lot of people are very interested uh, in using it possibly as an outpatient basis, especially in patients who are not going to be able to take a triazole due to the drug-drug interactions. Uh, the company that's developing it is Sidera, and they did file uh, a new drug application with the FDA in July of this year. Uh, and their indications they're looking for are uh, invasive candidiasis uh, and candidemia. But if you're thinking about a adverse effect profile, a drug-drug interaction profile, uh, then resifungin is just like the other kind of candens. Yeah, kind of candens are nice, minus the weirdness with CASPO and CYP inducers. But other than that, no drug interactions, really limited ADR, so they are nice. I like antifungal episodes because I feel like when we talk spectrum, we're saying Harry Potter spells. So that's also a fun <laughs> twist to this episode. Um, but when you went through spectrum, I think one thing I want to emphasize and another niche potentially for fungin is pneumocystis, right? Mm -hmm. And yes. so um, it, the treatment of um, especially patients that have LVADs or these patients that need to be on echinocannons forever, essentially, I think this will be really, really nice. Um, but it's role in prophylaxis for pneumocystis is something else that's intriguing, especially in the transplant space. And that'll be something to watch. We have a lot of patients that can't tolerate Bactrim and then I don't even get me started on a Tovacone and Dapsone. So this will be a nice, <laughs> nice option potentially in that space. Another interesting thing about this drug, although certainly we're focusing on the longer IV formulation, they, in a phase two, trial, phase two trial, they have actually also been evaluating a gel or, or topical ointment for vulvovaginal candidiasis. And so that would be a really unique um, kind of use for an echinocandin where we haven't really had an echinocandin used that way before. Um, and obviously that's very early in trials, but just something interesting for this class as well. Yeah. Thanks, Kayla. That's, I did not realize that. And I think, again, we tend to focus a little bit more on acute care settings on this podcast, but uh, most patient care shifting outpatient and a lot of these infections, we're seeing increasing resistance in the community. So three agents with this indication is very important for a lot of our patients, a lot of our colleagues. And, and so that's really, that's cool to think about as well. 
Okay, I think we have two more antifungals to talk about to round out our discussion of the pipeline. Um, and they both start with an O. So the first one is Alora Fim. I always want to say firm. I always want to like add the R, like with Evusheld, how people always want to call it Evushield and add the I. But it's Alora Fim. Um, and this is a nice one also with Lamentospora activity. So these kind of real niche things that we used to have no options for. Now we're starting to see options for, which is exciting. So Kayla, do you want to talk to us a little bit about Alorafim? Yes. Alorafim is part of a new class, the Aurotamides. Um, it is a novel class of antifungals. They are still in development, phase two trials, I believe, um, most recently. And they inhibit um, pyrimidine synthesis through inhibition of um, fungal dihydroorotate dehydrogenase, Ugh, mouthful. You're um, <laughs> so many words. <laughs> so many words. But the spectrum is really some of those unique um, dimorphic fungi or molds like Aspergillus, Sketosporium, among other agents. It's currently being um, studied for invasive fungal infections in patients that lack other treatment options. And so, like I said, kind of those weird fungi that we just historically don't have a lot of options for. Some things to pick out on Alorafim is that there's really not a lot of data yet. Um, efficacy data is pretty limited, uh, but it has been pretty well tolerated in phase one safety studies from what I have kind of looked at quickly. Of interesting note for Alorafim, it has been granted breakthrough therapy status, orphan drug designation, and then uh, granted qualified infectious diseases product designation in various years for a variety of different invasive mold infections. And so a lot of hope put into this agent for those difficult to treat mold infections. But interestingly, no candida activity whatsoever, which is so fascinating to me, I think, because I just think of candida as kind of like the, like, homophilus of fungus, you know, like, <laughs> like everything can kill it. Um, but not this agent. And I think that's really important because all the other ones do with candida crucia, you can call out candida lusitani with amphotericia. Like there's weird candidas, but in general, candida albicam seems pretty weak sauce, but not for this drug. So that's important to note. Um, and no mucor, um, in vitro activity at least. And so again, in vitro activity, we'll see what that pans out clinically. But, um, when we think about the big, bad things we want to cover this, this drug is not going to be your, your go-to there. So, yeah. Um, and I think, I think they're actually going to release the results of their phase two study at ID week, uh, wow. this year. So, um, that's going to be very interesting to see how it looks. Um, it does have, a, you know, we, we say it has no yeast activity and doesn't cover the mucorales, but we have to be cautious because there are other molds it doesn't really cover very well as all. And so one of them is Fusarium salani. You know, there's a whole, whole slew of different Fusarium species, and we'll cover some of the ones that are very rare, but Fusarium salani doesn't seem to have any activity against. Uh, a few other ones as well, um, it doesn't really touch. And so this is one of those drugs that you're really going to have to have a pretty good idea of what is causing the infection. So it's almost like a diagnostic dilemma for you and for the company in this drug in order to get it into the right patients. Awesome perspective. Thank you for that. And I, I think I'll stay with you, Nathan, to round out our final, final drug. So opalconazole, this one's unique, unique delivery mechanism, at least. And so I guess I, I, I didn't realize we did stick you with all the me too classes basically, but <laughs> uh, what can you tell us about this, this drug? 
Sure. So opalconazole, it is a triazole. And so it's not a new class. It's not a new variant of the azole. It's a triazole. Uh, but uh, what is being done is being developed for aerosolized administration. So direct, direct delivery into the lungs. And you know this has been talked about a long time uh, in uh, the antifungal world and in also in you know, folks who are interested in pharmaceuticals. When I first uh, got to my faculty position at UT Austin College of Pharmacy back in 2004, one of the first studies I did was with a pharmaceutics professor in which we were aerosolizing voriconazole. You know, and the whole point is to get direct delivery to the lungs, which is the primary point of entry for a lot of invasive fungal infections, uh, and also where a lot of invasive diseases. And you know, the thought was if you can get high concentrations at the site of infection while avoiding systemic exposure and also therefore limiting drug-drug interactions and adverse effects, that might be a way to overcome some of the limitations of the triazoles. Um, this company has taken it in now into clinical trials. Uh, and so I believe they are either in phase two or phase three. I'm not quite sure which one. Uh, and again, uh, they're trying to do direct delivery uh, to the lungs. Uh, it has pretty good activity uh, against Canada species, including Canada auris and uh, Canada cruzii, as well as uh, albicans glabrata, uh, as well as cryptococcus. So that'll be a big one when we're talking about uh, a yeast pulmonary infection. It has pretty good activity against Aspergillus fumigatus and Aspergillus flavus, and some activity against Rhizopus. However, it does have some holes in its spectrum of activity, including other Aspergillus species, such as Aspergillus niger, uh, certain penicillium species, as well as other members of the order Mucorales like, like Themia. And so this was the first drug that this company uh, has kind of taken into clinical trials. And they actually have uh, uh, another drug uh, that at least they've published some in vitro data on it. You know, it's the next generation of opalconazole that they're also looking at. So this is something that the company is really, really, uh, you know, invested in, which is pulmonary delivery uh, of an azole, uh, really to help try to avoid some of the systemic exposures and therefore limit drug-drug interactions and adverse effects. And I think that's a good point. The last sentence you said to limit systemic exposure. So is the goal that this is either prophylaxis or maintenance therapy in the absence of any systemic agent, or is this intended to be used ad adjunctively for really invasive pulmonary infections or things like that? You know, I think they're looking for both. I think prophylaxis is the first thing they're going to go for. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I don't know if they have explored combination therapy yet, kind of like you said, as an adjunct. Um, but I believe right now uh, that's something on their radar, but right now it's from a prophylaxis standpoint. Awesome. Thanks for that clarification. Okay. Well, that rounds out all of our new antifungals in the pipeline. Not all of them. There are definitely other phase one agents and other things exciting, but the main ones that I think people should have a pulse on right now. Thank you guys for those overviews. It was fantastic, but let's move into actually using these drugs, right? So we mentioned in our review, you know, in, in vitro activity in the lab does not necessarily correlate with clinical activity, vice versa. And so, and antifungals are, are even more unique than antibacterial challenges with susceptibility testing and how you present the information that you test to clinicians in a usable fashion, right? A lot of these drugs and bug, and bug combinations don't have breakpoints. A lot of the testing mechanisms may be different than traditional bacteria. And we know that we struggle 
even reporting out antibacterial <laughs> MICs and susceptibility interpretations, so antifungals adds a whole new layer of complications. So Nathan, you wrote a beautiful paper in OFID. This podcast episode is really like highlighting the work of you two and the very valuable contributions you've made to society. Um, but this one is nice. This uh, OFID review called Antifungal Susceptibility Testing, a Primer for Clinicians. So I think it's one of those great papers you hand out on rotation. Everyone should read to have a good background on, on this topic. So I encourage everyone to read the paper, but in the meantime, can you summarize the key points for us? And so walking through things like what, what formats are available for um, antifungal AST and does that different from bacteria? Um, and then in, in those testing modalities, how do you read the endpoints? Cause that can vary for different bacteria too, in order to determine that MIC. And then I'll have some additional questions from there, but why don't you set the stage for us? Sure. Happy to do it. And so in terms of the formats that are available for antifungal susceptibility testing, uh, there are a lot of similarities. And this is where the similarities do exist uh, between antibacterial and antifungal susceptibility testing. So CLSI and UCAST, uh, they do publish um, methods for broth microdilution. Uh, and those are usually the ones that the FDA uh, and other regulatory agencies uh, will use as the gold standards when evaluating commercially available products. And so, but very few labs actually use them because, you know, there are no CLSR UCAST commercially available panels available. You actually have to make them on your own. That's very time intensive and requires uh, a lot of training of your staff and quality assurance and quality control. There are, just like for antibacterial testing, for antifungal testing, there are commercially available products. Uh, one that is routinely used in a lot of labs uh, that do yeast testing, yeast uh, susceptibility testing, is the Sensitider Yeast 1 Colometric Assay. It's a broth microdilution panel. Uh, I think the uh, Y09 uh, panel contains uh, nine different antifungals. Um, but instead of looking at the endpoint of inhibition of growth, you're looking at a color change. So it contains a dye called Alamar Blue. And so fungi that are actively metabolizing, uh, they metabolize that uh, Alamar Blue uh, and goes from a blue color to a pink, uh, light red color. And so the endpoint is where you're seeing that color change, and you're really not to focus on uh, growth inhibition. Uh, the other thing that labs will use are gradient diffusion. You know, most people think of e-test strips, and there's actually another product available now from a company called Lyophil Chem. It's their MTS strips. It works the exact same way as the e-test strips. Uh, so uh, they also have uh, a variety of products available for antifungal as well as antibacterial testing. Uh, of course, disc diffusion is available. Uh, CLSI has methods published for both yeast disc diffusion as well as for mold disc diffusion. I don't think a lot of labs are using it though because it's somewhat subjective to read the endpoints, especially for the azoles. And for the echinocannons, the endpoints are very difficult to read just because the echinocannons don't diffuse very far uh, from the disc. And that's just due to their large size and inability to diffuse through the auger. Uh, and I don't know of a lab that's actually ever used a disc diffusion for mold susceptibility testing. Uh, we have never even attempted that. Uh, and of course, there is an automated method as well. Uh, the one that is the most familiar, mostly used here, at least in the United States, is the uh, Vitec 2 system uh, from BioMariu. 
Uh, it does have a limited number of antifungals that can be tested, and it's really only used for uh, certain candida species as well as cryptococcus. And so what you can use for testing with the uh, Vitec 2 is somewhat limited. Now, the yeast one uh, is an FDA-cleared product, uh, but it's really only FDA-cleared for testing candida species. Some labs have tried to use it for uh, mold testing, uh, and it has good results for aspergillus, variable results for uh, other molds, and so not necessarily used widely for mold susceptibility testing. Now, where we start to see differences between bacterial testing and uh, fungal susceptibility testing are the endpoints that are used. You know, for most antibacterials, it's a pretty easy endpoint. You're seeing 100% inhibition of growth. Mm -hmm. Now, for antifungal susceptibility testing, it's dependent upon the antifungal as well as the fungal organism you're testing against. So, for example, for the triazoles against yeast, we're looking for a prominent or a 50% reduction in growth, but not 100% inhibition of growth. But when we test the triazoles against molds, then it's 100% inhibition endpoint. It gets even a little crazier with the echinocandins. With the echinocandins against yeast, it's like the triazoles against yeast, a prominent or at least a 50% inhibition of growth. But then when you start testing the echinocandins against molds, it's a completely different endpoint. It's not an MIC, it's what we call an MEC, or a minimum effective concentration. And I like to think of this as a mechanism of action-based endpoint. And so in filamentous fungi, such as uh, aspergillus, uh, as Kayla described earlier, you know, we're targeting the 1,3-beta-D glucan synthase. And in filamentous fungi, that enzyme is located where the organism is growing, at the apical tips and at the branch points. It's not throughout the organism. And so when you start to inhibit at those specific points, what it results in is these morphologic changes. You go from these nice, healthy-looking hyphae to those that are short, stubby, and abnormally branched, but it doesn't necessarily inhibit the entire growth of the organism. So that was reported back in 2000, I think. Uh, John Rex was actually one of the first ones to describe uh, that endpoint for the kind of candens against filamentous fungi. But we really don't still, to this day, you know, 20, 22 years later, haven't really correlated that with uh, clinical efficacy. And so, you know, we do it, we report it, but then we have questions about it. We say, we're not exactly sure how well that correlates with clinical outcomes. And so that's kind of, you know, some similarities between antibacterial susceptibility testing and antifungal testing, but also some differences. Now, why don't we talk about breakpoints? And so what are you going to do? Let's talk about breakpoints, right? Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> I think that's what I was going to add. Well, not only obviously, because it's the name of the podcast, but I think that it, this is fascinating to me. And obviously your experience with CLSI will be invaluable for our listeners to learn from. Um, but what you just describe in observing these phenomena, even in how the drugs and the bugs interact in a Petri dish, that's obviously going to be different than, um, how they interact in the human host or, or even in the preclinical data in mice, as you described, or whatever model you're using. Um, so how are the breakpoints set? And I think this is, this actually was something when I was first starting that blew my mind. Cause at first I thought it was like a very 
cut and dry thing, but there are a ton of variables that go into breakpoints, and there are differences in the United States and in Europe. So just enlighten us into what you take into consideration as you set these breakpoints, because they are what we live and die by, right? That's what tells us yes or no, susceptible or resistant for the most part. So. Sure. So, you know, one of the things I always like to tell folks and, you know, especially some of the uh, trainees that come through the lab, as well as our medical technologists, is that breakpoints are not naturally occurring phenomenon. They are set and voted upon by committees like CLSI and UCAST. And so there are a number of different factors that these committees take into account. You know, some of the big ones uh, include the MIC distributions. That's always a big thing. Uh, they're also looking at epidemiological cutoff values or ECOFs or like we like to refer to them here at CLSI as ECVs. Uh, in addition, they're taking into account the pharmacokinetics of the drug, uh, what can be achieved, uh, what cannot be achieved, uh, what are the PKPD parameters uh, associated with efficacy, even in, uh, in vitro and in vivo models, as well as if there might be some clinical PKPD data available. And most importantly, but also probably what's usually the most limited are clinical correlations between uh, responses and MIC values. And so, you know, you have this committee of folks, experts, you know, talking about folks in the lab like myself, then you have folks like Dave Andes, who's big into PKPD as well as clinical studies uh, and other folks. Uh, and we're sitting around hashing these out and then trying to decide, okay, what's the breakpoint going to be? Finally, someone makes a motion, it's seconded, and then we all vote on it. Then after a few years, we convene again, get together and say, you know, that probably wasn't a smart idea. Maybe we need to <laughs> rethink this. Uh, and that happens, you know, that that's happened for the, you know, uh, back in 2012, I believe it was, CLSI uh, reset breakpoints uh, for the azoles against candidate species, making them species specific, and did the same thing for the kind of candidate, saying, you know, one breakpoint for uh, mycofungin, caspofungin, nigelofungin uh, shouldn't be applied to all candidate species. And so we do review those and we do revise them if necessary. And the same thing happens uh, on the antibacterial susceptibility subcommittee. And so uh, we recognize that new data becomes available and we have to make adjustments. So do you think we can expect to see these ECVs and breakpoints for areas where they're currently kind of limited or are there other reasons why we're lacking some breakpoints or guidance on, on some of these um, molds and other difficult treat infections? Yes, and so actually, I believe it was either last week or the week before, it's just been in August, CLSI published some new documents, and one of them is now called the M57 document, and it's an update contains uh, more ECVs uh, for some of the rare yeast, and it contains also some of the mold ECVs as well, and so uh, I'm in the process of trying to acquire the M57 document uh, so that we have it available for our lab as well. You know, CLSI has been very, very conservative in setting uh, antifungal breakpoints because they really want to see data correlating uh, clinical outcomes with an MIC. 
UCAST has been, you know, kind of ahead of us in doing that, relying more on the PKPD parameters and MIC distributions and ECOFs. Um, I think at CLSI, we're kind of starting to recognize that we're not going to have a perfect world where we're going to have all of these clinical correlations. We still want to have that. Uh, but we're trying to be more progressive in setting breakpoints. You know, we do now have a breakpoint for voriconazole against Aspergillus fumigatus. Um, I'm on the working group that's trying to set a breakpoint for Izaviconazole against Aspergillus, and then we're going to follow that up with Posiconazole against Aspergillus as well. So we're trying to uh, kind of be uh, become a little bit more swifter in setting breakpoints uh, against some of the molds, and hopefully some of that will be coming out soon. That's awesome. It is crazy to think that some of these don't have interpretations. I think for those of us that are used to using them in practice, we've grown comfortable and maybe things that aren't correct, which is also dangerous. So that's really exciting to hear to round out this AST discussion, which was excellent. Thank you. What, what's your punchline? Like what's your take home? What do you think the thing that people that frontline clinicians need to know about antifungal susceptibility testing is? Yeah, and and you know I've given several presentations over the last year and a half on uh, susceptibility testing, and one of the things I always have this one slide that I include in every presentation. The take-home message of that slide is don't fixate on MIC values. There are that's only one component that should be made in clinical decisions, and you know whether or not to adjust therapy, change therapy, or stay the course. Kayla did an excellent summary of risk factors for invasive fungal infections uh, at the beginning of this podcast, and that's really one of the most important things you have to take into account. What is the host immune status? And that is probably going to be the major determinant of whether or not you're going to have a successful response. Antifungal drugs help. But if you have a patient with no white blood cells receiving high doses of corticosteroids, I don't care what antifungal you're going to put the patient on, you're going to have a poor outcome. In addition, you have to take into account uh, other comorbidities that the patient might have that might influence the outcomes of whatever is going on with them. Uh, what are the pharmacokinetics? You know, what is the concentration uh, that is at where the site of infection is occurring? What are drug-drug interactions that might limit what antifungals you can use? Are the patients having adverse effects and therefore being a non-adherent to their medication regimen? So don't fixate on the MIC. You have to look at the patient from a holistic standpoint and use all factors in order to make decisions. And just saying, oh, MIC is low, we're good. That's not necessarily a good practice. I love that. Thank you for that. And I, I think that segues nicely into the next thing I want to ask, which is about clinical controversies and the use of these agents and in treating these infections, because it is an area with very limited data for the most part. And as you described, a lot of times we don't necessarily have an interpretation for the AST result we're getting. I'm also laughing because Sam Aiken and I always joke that what treats uh, invasive fungal infections is neutrophils and <laughs> nothing else. Um, so I'm just <laughs> laughing at that. But uh, Kayla, why don't you start here? So clinical controversies, um, we could talk for another two hours about this. There are just so many in this space. And so things that off the top of my head, amphotericin dosing for mucor, do you need 10 mg per keg or not? What's the role of combination therapy? We've given, we've given nods to that already today in our discussions, um, dosing of a and critically ill patients or obesity to make some of the points Nathan just made. I mean, 
the list goes on, right? So we can't talk about them all. So Kayla, I want you to pick one. I know challenging or maybe two, I don't know. And explain to the listeners, the background of that controversy, what the deal is, the sides of the story and what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And there are a lot of controversies and I'd love to talk about all of them. I think that I would have to pick dosing of a kind of cannons in critical illness or obesity. I practice in Mississippi and I would estimate that. Uh, so I am on clinical service right now. And of the patients on my team, probably 30 to 50% of them at, at today, but also at every, any given point this month have been solidly in the overweight or obese or morbidly obese category. And so we just see a huge percentage of our populations that, that are critically ill and obese. And, and so this is the topic that I would pick. We, we've kind of talked about this with the new agents, but the echinocannons are fairly well tolerated and they currently are standard dosing regimens based on the approved labeling. So no weight-based dosing recommendations officially. There have been a couple evaluations that have shown similar efficacy between obese and non-obese patients. And I think that's the sticking point for the don't adjust side. In a 2011 evaluation by Ryan and colleagues that was published in Medical Mycology, favorable response, which was defined according to individual study protocols uh, of patients receiving caspofungin in nine clinical trials in the Merck database were similar in patients with invasive candidiasis, so 73% versus 77%, esophageal candidiasis, 81% versus 88%, invasive aspergillosis, which lower response rates here as we would expect at 48% and 44%, or patients receiving empiric therapy at 33% versus 40%. So similar across the board in obese versus non-obese patients from an outcomes perspective. A 2022 study published by the Henry Ford ID group evaluated 173 patients receiving anidulofungin in a retrospective cohort. And in the majority of patients, 66%, mortor- mortality was similar, regardless of which BMI category the patient fell in. And so I think this is one side of the story. We have outcomes data in, albeit limited evaluations that show that it doesn't matter if the patient is obese or not obese. I think the other side of that controversy is that we know through a, a lot of studies in bacterial infections specifically, that critical illness and obesity can alter PK and and PD of drugs. And so there have been some uh, post-package insert studies um, that that kind of evaluate this. So I'll go through just a couple quick things in the interest of time. But in 2017, there was a probability of target attainment study of mycofungin And basically what they found is if you have low MICs, and I know Nathan just told us not to focus too much on MICs, but at low MICs, the PTA was more than 91%. Anything more than that, and you had to transition to 200 milligrams of mycofungin daily instead of 100 to maintain that. And this has been shown in another study with anidulofungin, and Wassman and colleagues suggested a 25% increase in patients that were in that morbid obesity range. And then in a follow-up study, um, Wassman and colleagues did a prospective PK analysis that used a cutoff of 125 kilograms. And so I guess 
my take home point of this controversy is that we talk a lot about aconitabines being pretty safe drugs. There are some studies that have evaluated this. Generally, even up to eight milligrams per kilogram, they've been shown to be relatively safe. There also is a position statement from the Anti-Infective Drugs Committee of the International Association of Therapeutic Drug Monitoring and Clinical Toxicity that was published in 2022 that recommends therapeutic drug monitoring for all echinocandins. But in my practice, that is not a practicality. And so until therapeutic drug monitoring or any sort of guidance for therapeutic drug monitoring is available, I'm an advocate of going ahead and increasing the dose in critically ill obese patients. Um, now, should that be 150 milligrams of mycofungin, 200, 300, you can make that same argument with caspofungin and nigilofungin. Um, I'm not sure what the target should be, but I think they need more. You know, this comes up all the time um, in my patient population as well. And I would tend to agree with you, Kayla. The other thing I, I sometimes smile at is uh, for endocarditis, we give higher doses and everyone's totally fine with that. Uh, so we're, we're a CASPO institution. Um, and so I'm more close to CASPO data, but uh, CASPO is 70 and then 50 daily, but we give 150 for endocarditis. And every now and then we'll throw out some kind of like crazy, let's give a hundred to Caspo. And people are like, is that safe? And I'm like, well, we'd give them 150 if they had endocarditis. So it's probably fine to give them a hundred if they have candidemia and they're critically ill. Um, and so I think that perspective is helpful as well. Um, I also had a mentor, uh, uh, one time, uh, antifungal expert that I trained with, uh, at Wisconsin. One time we had this crazy cross country consult on candida oris. And he was like, I don't know, just give like 600 of mica. And I was like, is that a thing? <laughs> um, but you can very safely give, I'm not recommending 600 of mica just to be very clear. Um, but you can safely give more of these agents. And so I, I think I would tend to agree with you there. Okay. Well, the time has come breakpoints faithful for my favorite segment of the podcast, which we call, I feel nerdy. I feel nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you guys to share your craziest or coolest patient case or Nathan, I am, I can't even wait to hear what you have to say here. Not that Kayla's practice is not fascinating because it is, but you get referred all over the country. So I can't even imagine um, some of the stories you can tell us. So why don't you start um, your craziest or coolest antifungal moment? Sure. So how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you can talk forever on this no. one. I think this is like crazy awesome so so yeah so we see a lot of cool things uh and that's it's really what makes the job uh very enjoyable you know, as a reference lab we get things in that no one else has seen uh and, and that's kind of the interesting thing that makes you feel really fulfilled in what you do you know, we've described several new species of fungi that have caused infections in humans. And so it's always nice to say, you know, we're the first people to know this. No one else has known this. You know, we're going to be the first to publish it and describe it in the literature. And so that's interesting. The other thing that's interesting is always being, you know, we kind of have a good idea when outbreaks are going to occur. You know, when I first started this job back in 2013, that's when we were st first starting to have the uh, exerohylum rostratum uh, outbreak and the contaminated steroids from the New England Compounding Pharmacy uh, in Massachusetts. 
we were the first to describe azole-resistant Aspergillus fumigatus that was associated with uh, environmental exposure to azoles. Uh, and there's some interesting things that are going on now that I'm not going to talk about, but some of the most interesting work and some of the ones that makes me go, I don't know the answer to that at all, is all of the work that we do with vets. And so we accept specimens from vets across the U.S. So we're talking about, you know, your, oh, yeah. your cats, your dogs. I didn't know you did that. Oh, yeah. That's oh, crazy. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about, you know, you're talking about cats, dogs, you know, household pets, but then we're also talking about marine mammals, water parks, you know, zoos, uh, all across the United States. Uh, and the interesting things that occur because the kinetics that we see of antifungals is so much different. And so yeah. we're doing a lot of therapeutic drug monitoring. So for example, some of the bigger, uh, the bigger uh, groups of animals that we get are from dolphins and penguins, believe it or not. Oh because my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> their, so their pulmonary physiology makes them highly susceptible to invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, especially in captivity. And so they get aspergillosis, you know, they're able to culture it from, for dolphins, they culture from the blowhole, it's called a chuff plate. They send it to us, we're able to isolate the aspergillus, do testing on it, and then they're also able to send us plasma from the dolphins, and we measure voriconazole levels, which seems to be the drug of choice. These poor animals also get mucromycosis, and so then they're on posiconazole, and typically they'll do combination with terbinafine as well. So a lot of the things that we're trying in humans as last-ditch efforts, they're trying in animals. Then we go to the penguins, and this is kind of the most interesting thing that I have found. And so we were working with this vet on the East Coast uh, several years ago, and he was trying to see what was the best way to do voriconazole drug monitoring in the penguins that had invasive aspergillosis. And so we did this big pharmacokinetic study with them. For those of you who you know, are really familiar with antifungal pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, you might know the name William Hope. Uh, and he was involved with that. They did all the modeling of it. And, you know, we figured out what was the dose and what was the concentrations that needed to be achieved. And it was really interesting. And so then I was having a conversation with the vet and I said, okay, you know, what happens to these penguins if they get too high of concentrations of voriconazole? He said, well, they walk around like they're drunk. And so they have <laughs> CNS toxicities, kind of like, you know, we see in humans. You know, it almost has an encephalopathy picture. And yeah. so, so it's really interesting. And, you know, I'll, I'll finish up by saying, you know, when I first started this job in 2013, within the first two months, I got a call uh, from a vet. Uh, at a major zoo in the United States, uh, and they were uh, dealing with uh, a gorilla that had coccidiomycosis. So that kind of tells you where exactly the zoo is in the United States, and they wanted to know, how do you dose posiconazole in a gorilla? And <laughs> without thinking, I blurted out, well, very carefully, of course. And so... <laughs> With caution. <laughs> yeah, with caution. I still oh. don't know the answer to that, and I never got the answer from them. But, you know, it, it's those types of things that, you know, we start scratching our head. We go to the literature. We're trying to figure out, okay, can we try to use this information in humans, in this animal species? And sometimes we can't. And sometimes we say, your guess is as good as mine. That is 
I like don't have words and I always have words. Um, that was incredible. I, that was so interesting. I was not expecting penguins and gorillas to come into this conversation. <laughs> um, but that is absolutely fascinating. So wait, what is the, what's the typical dose of voriconazole on a penguin? Um, I think they would do it on a milligram per kilogram basis. And I'm wanting to say it was somewhere between two and five milligrams per kilogram, but I'd have to go back and check. So if there are any vets listening to this, don't trust my word for it. Go back and look at our paper and it'll tell you. So we'll get some veterinarian peer review. That was amazing. That is is very cool. Fascinating. I know. And I I just have to ask what do you expect to have openings in your lab? Because I could totally work with some penguins and dolphins and gorillas. We actually did a site visit one time. They were having outbreaks uh, in various animals. And so myself and one of our former employees uh, did a site visit for two days and collected fungal specimens in the environment from this place uh, that had penguins and dolphins and all types of exotic animals. And so we were trying to go back and do it again, but COVID came around. And so we haven't been able to go back and and do more work for them. So never a dull moment in this job. No, that is amazing. And thank you for all that you do, because that is just, that's incredible. Um, Well, Kayla, I want to hear about your crazy story too. I assume it doesn't involve penguins, but it might, who knows. Um, But I'm sure in all of your work in this space, you have also some just very fascinating patient cases. So, yeah, but I don't know if I can follow penguins and dolphins. Um, well, uh, I will start by saying in, in the spirit of, I feel nerdy. I, I have to say at the beginning of my more crazy story than cool story that it has been ingrained in me that these are mold infections we're talking about M O U L D. And so from a, I feel nerdy perspective, Um, I have to say that I'm firmly on the U side of the mold infections instead of no U. Team extra extra vowels, got it. Extra vowels, yes. Do you spell enrollment with one L too? Because I (laughs) firmly, firmly American on that one. Uh, So my crazy case kind of is, uh, I think what I I was solidly into ID by then, but it was what solidified it. Um, It stuck with me for 15 years of practice. I was on a rotation in a pediatric intensive care unit, and we had this uh, this young child come in in DKA and glucose is 700, 800, no past medical history. So obviously diagnosed with diabetes type one at the time. And then during the hospital stay, it was noted that the patient had a black Escher in the orbital in the orbital region and subsequently was diagnosed with rhinocerebral mucormycosis. And then it was identified everywhere in in this small child's body. We did multiple surgical resections, significant um, disfiguration from these resections, gave high-dose amphotericin, and then infused it anywhere in the body that there was a hole that we could instill it topically. And the patient survived. not without you know some detriments due to the infection, but it was my first exposure to mucormycosis, and it was devastating to see that this could happen. And so I'm still most scared of any infection of mucoralis um, because of this case, but it made me want to be better, and it made me want to improve antifungal therapies and help kind of alleviate some of these lifelong burdens. And I think some of these new drugs that we're talking about that um, maybe we can maximize and, and make better, um, make this my, I feel nerdy case. 
Yeah, Kayla, that's as, as amazing as penguins. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. These cases are extremely devastating, which is why having options is so, so important and understanding testing and breakpoints and all of these things go together so that we can provide the best care we can for all kinds of patients, whether they, any, any mammal, amphibian, what have you. Um, and with that, I cannot thank you guys enough. This has been an amazing discussion. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. I have been your host today, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Kayla Stover and Dr. Nathan Wiederholm. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes and was edited and peer-reviewed by Drs. Emily Fox, Sonal Patel, and Zara Kasamali-Escobar. Our production team includes Dr. Anna Zhao, and the executive producer of Breakpoints is myself. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials, both now and for the future. Thank you.